Romans chapter 3, just verses 1 through 8. This is, uh, just keeps flowing from the end of chapter 2. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, or God forbid. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Again, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And Why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask your blessings on the teaching of it that will build up the church, encourage our hearts to live for you, and draw those who do not know you to the Son of God who died for their sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage that we ended on last week said these words, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. And so demonstrating, as we talked about, that the true people of God are determined by the work of God in the heart of individuals and not by the works of the law, not by adherence to the law, not by birth, not by lineage, but that true Jews were not made by pointing to Abraham as a blood relative. As John the Baptist pointed out in his ministry, God is able to raise up children of Abraham from the stones if that's all he wanted. But the point there was an outward appearance of righteousness, says Paul, may be achieved from the letter or from what men would see as keeping the law. And when you do that, men will cheer you on. But the man who has the Spirit of God within him, his praise is not from God, uh, not from man, but from God. And so he continues that thinking into chapter 3, this line of reasoning, this argument. Because you remember there are no chapter breaks in the original text of Scripture. These were added way later to kind of help be able to keep up where we are. But this is just one line of thought without breaking. That's why it seems awkward when you just start reading chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Well, he's answering according to this last uh, verse 29 in chapter 2. It does, however, chapter 3, that is, begin a new section. So he is moving on to a different thought, but based on his teaching thus far. And again, he anticipates a listener question, sort of um, 
an objector, if you will. And he'll do this, and you see it as we read at this section. He does it several other times throughout Romans where he's teaching, and then he says, but what if somebody said this about what I just said? Or what if somebody objects this? Some people refer to it as the hypothetical objector. And so here, Paul is doing that once again. And I think probably, most likely, as it seems evident in our text, he's doing this hypothetical or objector kind of argument because he's heard these things, right? He's been somewhere and taught this already. He's preached the gospel, and somebody has asked these questions. At the end there, he says, some people slanderously charge us with saying this. So I think he's not just making these up as he goes. I think he knows these questions are coming. So I'm going to go ahead and address it. And so as we enter this section, uh, verses 1 through 8, chapter 3, um, keep that in mind. And also I want to say this. These verses are very difficult to interpret. A lot of different interpretations. Many thinkers have had difficulties with it. Martin Lloyd-Jones even said that he found this passage not only to be the most difficult passage in Romans to interpret, but the most difficult passage in all Scripture to interpret. So when you read stuff like that, it makes me want to skip over it. But I'm not going to skip over it. I'm going to do the best I can with it. I'm not even going to get all the way through these eight verses because I think there's a lot here, and I want to try to be clear. But we have this question, this objector. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or even what advantage has circumcision? Because if you remember the argument all the way back at the beginning of chapter 1, when Paul begins, is that the justice of God, or in order to be considered righteous according to God's standard, the only way for that to happen is through the gospel and through faith. Begins with faith, ends with faith. Remember that, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. And then... Paul demonstrates why that is so, right? Because people are wicked. Because of the fall. Because of human sinfulness. Because no matter how good we can be, there was a point in our life where we broke the law, and that makes us a lawbreaker. And we can't undo that. We cannot outweigh the scale and tilt it back to justice once we have fallen because we are a breaker of God's law. We have not succeeded in the righteous standard so God has made it possible for sinful men to be considered righteous because of Jesus and that's Paul's point here so we preach the gospel because the gospel is the good news of God in Christ Jesus which is the power of God in salvation but he then lists in chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 an example or examples of the wickedness of humanity And, of course, we talked about the fact that the Jewish man listening to Paul would have agreed with him as long as he thought Paul was talking about the Gentiles. But now he's turned the conversation and the application specifically to Jews, to God's people. And rather than giving them a pass, he has ultimately declared them to be as much under the wrath and judgment of God as the Gentiles. And, in fact, he's making an argument, I believe, that their sinfulness could be even considered worse than the Gentiles because they are hypocrites claiming to be against the wretchedness of the Gentiles while committing the same sin, right? 
So the thing about the Jewish man at this point in history is that because God had picked them out of all the peoples of the earth, right, to be his special people, and of course we're going to talk more about what that means, and we kind of know what that means because we have the advantage of looking back and we have the complete canon of Scripture. But his point in choosing them was not just to make them special and look better than everybody on earth, but for the Jewish person, their thinking process was, well, the whole world will be condemned, but not us, because we're God's people. They never were able, they never would break it down individually, right? They never understood that that it was an individual thing. And so for them to hear Paul say all this stuff about the wrath of God's coming, and it's coming upon the Gentiles. Look at how they live. To them, they would have agreed. Well, yeah, it's coming because they're not God's people. And so Paul is trying to make this argument. They've really mixed things up. The Jewish people of God, that is, they are only considering the externals. And so he brings it all the way down even to this idea of circumcision, something they really would have been eager to listen to. You remember how Paul made that whole thing, that whole argument there, that even if the Gentiles who have not been circumcised live the way God ordains people, his people to live, they're better off than you are. Because they were missing the point. They were only considering the externals, that they had been called, that they had been elected that they had been given the covenant, that they were the descendants of Abraham, that they had the sign. And especially they had this sign, the circumcision, which was very important, and which was the sign of the covenant, and which did separate them from all the other nations. But Paul was pointing out that the inward sign, I mean the outward sign without the inward transformation was meaningless, Right? You can receive all the outward signs you want to, but if there's nothing inward, then it's worthless. Even if you are a descendant of Abraham, right? The sign, Paul is saying, pointed to something bigger. Those of us who wear wedding rings, we have an outward symbol. I always say in that line at weddings, this is an outward physical symbol of an inward grace. It's, it's testifying to something else. Is testifying to the covenant that we were making with God to practice fidelity to the covenant, right? But that ring is not the marriage. In fact, the ring is nothing if we don't come home, if we don't love our spouse, if we don't cherish them, if we don't love only our spouse and keep only relationship with our spouse. The ring means nothing. And so Paul anticipates the Jewish listener asking, well, you're making it sound like circumcision doesn't even matter, Paul. What value is it? Is there any value in it? And of course, Paul says, yes, much in every way there's an advantage. To begin with, he says, or firstly or chiefly, let me just begin by saying above all else, the reason that your circumcision matters is that you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God, that phrase is used only a few times in the New Testament, about four times counting this time. And it simply means the Word of God. The Word of God. 
So here's the thing, Israelites. God has spoken to you. And you go back to chapter 1, and this is there too. The remainder of humanity outside of the Jewish people, they only have natural revelation. But even that we find out that natural revelation is enough to condemn them. They only have what they can see about God. They don't have the special direct revelation that the Israelites had. They had God speaking to them. Above all else, he says, and above your circumcision even, of greater importance and significance is the fact that God has spoken to your people. That's a big deal. You have the oracles of God. What advantage has the Jew? You have the words that have proceeded from the mouth of God. This is what makes their condemnation so great, right? The other peoples only have natural revelation, yet they are without excuse, but you have been given direct divine revelation. You are doubly without excuse. You want to know about advantage? You have great advantage, but you also have greater condemnation as a result. When you cannot see that the reason God has spoken to you and given you the oracles of God is for you to anticipate the Messiah of God who is to come. And when he came, you didn't recognize him, right? Because you were too concerned about receiving the praise of men and you missed the blessing of God. That's what Paul is saying here to them in, in lot fewer words. Of course your circumcision is a great thing. Why? Because that is a sign that God has given to you his oracles. He has spoken to you. Yes, he made a promise to Abraham, your father, through the covenant. But remember, a covenant that was given to Abraham, Abraham had nothing to do with. He was asleep. God made the covenant himself. It was God who passed through the midst of the sacrifices. He made the covenant and sealed the covenant and then gave Abraham the sign of circumcision substantiating that he would keep the covenant. God will keep the covenant. Abraham couldn't keep it. That's why Abraham was asleep and God made the covenant. Because God will keep the covenant. And he's given the sign and the seal that this covenant would be kept. And he has been faithful to keep that covenant. And remember, Abraham had faith and believed before he received the sign. But the sign was not for the Jewish people to be a reason for pride. And it really wasn't even just a sign that they belonged to the people of God. It, it did symbolize that. But more importantly, it was a sign of the promise that God would keep his word. That these oracles that he had given his people would prove true. A sign that God would circumcise the hearts of his people who would believe that God would keep the covenant. So in other words, the sign that God gave them that he gave the Jewish people was not so that they could say, look at me. The sign was there to say to the Jew, look at your God. 
He will keep the promise he's made. Man, that application for us is very heavy, I think. By the blessings of God, Michael mentioned this in his prayer a while ago. By the blessings of God, we've been born where we were born. We didn't choose that, none of us. We've been blessed to be born in a free country, in a place where the gospel is freely preached, where there's very little persecution. And we've been given the oracles of God. God raised up men years ago like Tyndale and Wycliffe who translated the scriptures into English. And it's been translated to many other languages. We have it and we are without excuse. We have the word of God. Will not our judgment be greater when we have shelves full of Bibles, shelves full of the oracles of God, unlimited access to the oracles of God, yet we don't take advantage of it or read it? We have the new covenant sign of baptism. But do we recognize it for what it is? It too is not a sign to say, hey, look at us. But rather a sign that says, look at God and what he's promised to do. I go down into the water and back up again because it's only a picture on the outside of what God has done on the inside. He has washed and cleansed my heart. In fact, he took out what was there, the stain of sin, the stench of depravity, the rot of wretchedness, and he replaced it with grace and mercy and newness. We just sang about it. He's cleaning up my language. He's cleaning up my thoughts. He's giving me a new desire for family and for my covenant of marriage. He's taking away the desires of worldliness. He's transforming my mind and giving me a heart for worship. That's what my baptism points to. So when you think of your baptism, think deeper. It wasn't the water. It's what the water pointed to. Your baptism, too, is a reminder that God has made a covenant with his son to save all who believe in him. And you know what? None of us were there when that covenant was made. It ain't up to us to keep it. We can't. God keeps his covenant. So Paul says, yes, circumcision it's profitable. In fact, it's profitable in every way. Baptism is profitable in every way. Being a Christian is profitable in every way if you've been circumcised in your heart. If not, it's not. If you belong to a church, that's profitable. If you've been born again, it's profitable. If you've been baptized, it's profitable. If you've been born again, Bible reading is profitable if it leads you to Christ. Bible study is profitable if you discover that all the Bible finds its fulfillment in Christ. None of that's profitable if you have another aim or goal, right? Theology is profitable if it leads you to Christ. If it leads you just to win an argument or be smarter than the other people you know, it's not profitable. That's what Paul is saying about circumcision. I think it applies to everything in the Christian life as well. 
because they had missed it. They, the, the externals mattered more than what God was doing for them internally. What God had done for their nation mattered more than what God was doing for each individual person as part of a whole. The applications seem endless. But we get to verse 3 and Paul seems to be anticipating objectors again. So they say, okay, well then, you're, you're saying that circumcision only matters if something's been done on the inside. But what if some are still unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So what if Jews who have been circumcised have been unfaithful? Does that mean that God has not kept his promise? It's as if Paul is talking past them. Like whoever this objector is, they're missing the point. They're kind of not really hearing this internal truth. They're still only thinking externally. So you're saying one can be a Jew, Paul, and have the oracles of God and have circumcision, all these advantages, and still be considered unfaithful? Doesn't that nullify the faithfulness of God? Wouldn't that prove unfaithfulness on God's behalf? That the benefits really are not benefits? You say they're very much beneficial, but it sounds like if you can have all these benefits and it not profits you spiritually, then God's not able to keep his promises. And again, I think it's important to remember that they were missing the Jewish people, most, many, were missing the point of God choosing them to begin with. The point was never them. The point was Christ and the church. They were just part of it. Right? The true Israel of God is Christ and his bride is the church. And Israel has always been a picture of the church. The church is Israel. God does not have a plan for Israel and a plan for the church. I really believe the whole point in choosing Israel and electing them was to demonstrate that God has an elected people and that people will be made, that elected people will be made up from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that was always God's plan, by the way. In the Old Testament, the prophets proclaimed to the Jewish nation that God had called them to be a light to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles could always come in to the covenant. It's not like that just started happening when Christ came. But God pulled them out of all the peoples and said, you'll be my people and you'll be a light to the Gentiles. But yet all these years down the road, they hated the Gentiles. And they thought what mattered was being Jewish. <coughs> so this objector is saying, so if, all the Israelites are not saved, and some actually receive the wrath of God instead. Doesn't that make God unfaithful? And so Paul answers, again, absolutely not, or God forbid, because let God be true, though every man is a liar. And here's the truth. Every man is a liar. The only one who's not a liar is God. And then he points back to Psalm 51. 
If you remember Psalm 51, this is where David comes to repentance. He, he comes back to the prophet and he recognizes that his sin with Bathsheba and the murder that followed, all those things that, and that surround that whole episode in David's life. You remember, first David's very prideful. like He didn't think he'd done anything wrong. But he's brought to repentance over it. And he's calling out to God to purify him and cleanse him and create a new heart in him. And he says this, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. Actually, it says blameless in your judgment is what David says. Paul takes and quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but he kind of he kind of takes what David says and applies it here. David said, God, I, I, I want, I've only sinned against you. In other words, he confesses, my sin wasn't against Bathsheba, my sin wasn't against her husband, my sin was against you. And he said, I say this so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Paul comes and quotes that and he says to the to the objector hey every man can be a liar but God is true so that God might be justified in his words and that God might prevail when he is judged in other words men can judge God all they want to but God will prevail in his truth and his judgment David thought he was not guilty, but he came to a different conclusion and confessed what he discovered to be true. Paul uses the quote to show that even when men accuse God of wrongdoing, even when men, in the best way they can, judge God, God will be found blameless. God's judgment will be found right. Because the promises of God do not depend on the faithfulness of men. Thank God they don't. And so this objector was missing the point. So you're telling me God can pull these, these people out, this whole nation, give them this sign, give them the oracles of God, and some of them still be found under the wrath of God and be judged? Oh, yeah. That doesn't make God faithless or unfaithful? No. Because in that, God still has a plan. And in that... Man can't thwart God's plan. And the promises of God do not depend on the faith, faithfulness of men. God is going to keep his promise. Within the elect nation of God, there is a remnant of the elect people of God. And God is not sitting around waiting on faithful men to keep the covenant. Again, I remind you, God made the covenant with Abraham while he was asleep. The new covenant made, not with us, but Christ made it with his blood. A covenant with the Father and all that the Father brings to Christ. Christ will save. And through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit will regenerate the dead sinners and give them faith to believe. It's a covenant within the Trinity. That's amazing. We refer to it as the covenant of redemption. Again, we're not going to mess that up because it was made way before we were here. A covenant made within the Godhead. We're just told before the foundation of the world to save a people that God has chosen. 
and all three persons of the Godhead intimately involved in keeping this covenant. And puny, sinful, pitiful, finite men cannot and will not nullify this covenant or in any way keep God from fulfilling it. Now, that's okay for us to say, I don't understand all this. You know, I don't understand this election and not electing and reprobation. It's one thing to say I, I don't understand it. It's another to say that men can somehow get in the way of it or change it. I don't understand it either, but I can proclaim it because it's written in the oracles of God. And that's why at this point, when this question is raised about God's unfaithfulness, Paul answers strongly, the strongest way he could have said, absolutely not. The King James again says, God forbid. Though everyone is a liar, and they are, let God be true, God will be found true. I'll try to unravel the rest of this next time if I haven't confused you already. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the blessing of the covenant that you've made. That we are blessed to be brought into. And so I thank you that we're able to look into the scriptures and see the whole of it. Um, I thank you that these truths are sometimes they're tough and they're hard to wrap our minds around. We thank you that you're in control of all these things. And we can trust you even though we can't trust our interpretation sometimes and we can't trust our own minds to think through these things, but we know that you are a good and gracious God and you do what's right. And it only makes sense that <clears throat> all humanity is under sin and you'll, we'll see that as we go on through this chapter that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as somebody says regularly, uh, no matter how great of a sinner you are, Christ is a greater Savior. And there's so, so much truth in that. And we love that. And I pray that you just continue to testify that to our hearts and our souls and remind us of who we are in Christ. And in Him we can never fail. And even though we were sinners, or even while we were sinners, He died for us. And we thank you for that. And just continue to bless as we travel through this great book and increase our understanding and our faith in, in Christ, we pray. Amen.